Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. My name is Eric Wicklin, and I'm the Technology and Innovations Editor here at Health Leaders. Today, we're talking to Jeffrey Boyce, co-founder and CEO of Array Behavioral Care, which focuses on telepsychiatry services. We're talking today about how telehealth has helped to disrupt the behavioral health landscape and give both providers and patients new opportunities to connect for treatment. We'll also touch on the platform, how it's, how it's being used for substance abuse treatment, and how the DEA's provo- uh, proposed revision of the law surrounding telemedicine prescriptions has caused so much concern. Um, hello, Jeffrey. Hi, Eric. Thanks for joining me today. Let's 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 jump right into this now. Um, how is tele? How are you using telehealth for in in behavioral care and substance abuse treatment? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, and and really it's an exciting question because you could almost take it and flip it, right? And you could really ask the question of how is telehealth not being used within behavioral care, and and maybe even get more interesting insight from that, right? So behavioral care. Mm-hmm is probably the best use case for telehealth. It's probably the area where there's the greatest adoption, and it's probably the area where there's the greatest sense that telehealth would not will not only persist, but where telehealth will really continue to prosper into the future. Um, and I would say, you know, in answer to that question, where is telebehavioral health not being used? It's a really pretty sh- short list, right? Um, I think there's some limited uses within inpatient psychiatric facilities, that idea of kind of regular day-to-day rounding or running those group sessions or doing those kind of individualized intense in-person therapy sessions from of an inpatient unit aren't really primary applications of telehealth. Uh, I think telehealth certainly has its place within inpatient care for things like supplemental rounding and after-hours admissions, crises on the units. Uh, but telehealth probably isn't on pace to become the primary way of delivering care in these sorts of intensive inpatient levels of care over the course of the next couple of years. Um, and I would say a, a second instance where maybe telebehavioral health is not flourishing is it's really those kind of unique individualized instances when a patient has a strong preference for an in-person care and where in-person services are readily available which really isn't the norm everywhere, right? Um, and I know you followed this closely and I've really enjoyed over the last couple of years watching kind of the research and the literature. And I found it really interesting that the latest research is really looking at situations where telehealth for behavioral care may actually yield better results than in-person care, right? Um, you know, I think there's a look at how quickly and how efficiently that therapeutic alliance can be built via video uh, versus in person where an individual might be a little reticent or um, you know feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, there's a lot of reports coming from clinicians that people are able to get into kind of difficult and sensitive issues early and often uh, via telehealth. And um, you know it's it's got a lot of potential uh, and the research is starting to bear that out. We're also, I think as telehealth moved into people's homes for mental health services over the last couple of years with a lot of Rapidity, we've seen a lot of instances where clinicians report that doing sessions at home with individuals is yielding new types of clinical insights, right? Uh, With telehealth, clinicians now have access to really new and valuable information uh, from that in-home session that you couldn't see within uh, an in-person environment of the clinic, right? They get indications on where and how that individual lives, who they live with, 
get kind of new opportunities to engage family members and other members of the support team in their care. Um, and it's pretty exciting to think not just about how telehealth is enabling much greater access to mental health services, but how it is really starting to force that clinical model to evolve and maybe helping raise the quality of the care that's delivered as well. Yeah, a, a lot of the early benefit uh, to, to telehealth was the idea that you could reach people who could not make it to an office or uh, or, or who might not want to go to an office for, for behavioral health care. The idea of reaching out to them instead of having them reach out to you. Right. Um, um, some of the clinical benefits that, that, that you had mentioned that, that, that with the idea that virtual care might be better than in-person care for specifically for behavioral health. How, you know, how do you approach that? Is it is this something that you realize just going into a virtual visit that you might be getting more out of this than uh, as a provider than meeting a person in in the office? Yeah, it's a great question, Eric. And, you know, I should preface it by stating that I'm not a clinician myself, right? And so my perspective, <laughs> perspective is really just that of as an administrator that's helping support these clinicians that are doing it. Uh, but I think in the early days of us starting to offer services directly to individuals in their homes, and, and we started doing that five or six years ago before the pandemic, we were starting to get these kind of anecdotes that were coming back from our clinicians about how they now had access to all these other clinical indicators that they really never thought were possible when they were just seeing someone in the clinic. and you know, when we sh all shifted very quickly to kind of fully remote services during the pandemic, we we had to put some uh, pretty rapid training programs in place for our clinicians who were used to seeing folks um, in person or in a, a facility where there was a, a helpful facilitator to learn how to adapt their style to make the most of these new clinical indicators um, and how to get basic things like, you know, vital signs, height, weight, blood pressure uh, when they're seeing folks directly in their homes. And, and so it's amazing how quickly I think the whole industry, uh, you know, including our clinicians adapted. But um, I think it does take a, a different style and some different training to be able to take these services outside of their, their normal kind of bricks and mortar facilities and do it remotely. Do you feel that uh, patients are appreciative of this? Uh, are they are they getting more out of this type of virtual setting? Uh, I can unequivocally say yes to that question. Uh, my favorite thing to do on Monday morning is I get an email with uh, patient feedback uh, from our, our services, right, where we're capturing our, our net promoter score and little anecdotes and comments from our patients. And it's uh, extremely encouraging and uplifting to see, you know, comments along the lines of, of how uh, the services of our clinicians are in some instances saving people's lives. They're making uh, um, them hopeful for a future that they didn't think was possible um, and, uh, you know, really, really making a difference in, in transforming access and, and having a positive impact. Yeah, nice to point out as we, you know, it, it seems that we're facing a, a real crisis right now in behavioral health care. There seems to be a lot more people that are in need of these types of services. That's absolutely right. Yeah, there is a huge imbalance in the supply and demand curve for mental health services. There are simply more people who need these services than there are professionals to provide them. And so I think as a, a practice ourselves, the way we look at that is 
well, we've got to optimize and make the best use of every every possible resource that's out there. Um, and telehealth has been a great tool to distribute those resources that are out there. Um, but I think we're all looking forward to how this is going to evolve and how telehealth is going to enable those resources to work more efficiently and effectively and produce better clinical outcomes into the future. Okay. Yeah. Before we get to that evolution, let's talk a little bit. You know, we've talked about the benefits. What are the challenges to using uh, virtual care technology? Yeah. When I when I think about the barriers to telehealth, particularly within behavioral care, I, I think fortunately there's a really quick answer to that. But unfortunately, there's not an easy answer to overcoming those barriers. And in my opinion. Regulation is by far the biggest barrier to telehealth being used as widely as it could be within the behavioral space, right? And, you know, we talk about this massive imbalance in supply and demand. And the simple fact is that our current regulatory environment inhibits us from being able to make full use of those scarce resources, right? Um, a lot of this starts with state licensure and, you know, there's sort of a whole list of of other things that it rolls through, uh, but the, the short answer is that our current regulatory environment is impeding access to, to mental health services that could otherwise be available. Now, in that we're talking about state and federal guidelines that limit the use of telehealth in certain circumstances, um, as well as the, you know, the, the long argument about what uh, providers having to be licensed in every state that they that they practice in. Yeah, that, that's right. I think, um, you know, probably the biggest issue, in my opinion, is the way that state licensure works and the fact that the clinicians need to be licensed really now the state that they're sitting in and the state where the patient is sitting. But there are a number of other state specific registrations and reporting requirements that have popped up that are problematic. Uh, the need to obtain multiple state-specific DEA registrations, um, special policies around um, applying for and being able to offer controlled substance prescribing via telehealth. You know, and all of it rolls into the way that the clinicians themselves get credentialed, how they get privileged to work within hospitals, how they're enrolled with payers, how they gain access to different electronic medical records and even ways that they can or cannot exchange information with other members of the treatment team, right? Uh, there are just a lot of different regulatory issues that that limit care. And, and to be really clear, I'm not saying that we don't need regulation on behavioral care services. We absolutely do, and we're better that it exists. But the way that it works now is just is terribly inefficient, right? Um, what telehealth gives us the power to do is to break down these borders and cut across geography to enable us to have kind of a national or really even a global perspective on healthcare, but then healthcare regulation comes in and it chops everything up into these really small fiefdoms of authority that really kill the power and the potential of telehealth in a lot of ways. Yeah. How much of this is specific to behavioral healthcare as opposed to the regulation of telehealth in general? It's, it's not exclusive to behavioral, um, you know, it's a challenge that I think is experienced by all medical disciplines. I think we feel it really acutely within yes. behavioral because there is this massive imbalance of supply and demand, right? And 
Um, there just are not enough qualified clinical resources to meet the need. And so when you see an instance where it's being wasted because of some um, seemingly redundant or inefficient regulatory thing, it's it's pretty frustrating to everyone. Yeah, yeah, and let's let's jump on one specific instance here, and it's something that's very newsworthy now. Is the uh, the, the 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 DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, is revising its rules for the use of telemedicine and prescribing controlled substances. Um, uh, those rules were relaxed during the pandemic. Um, now we're getting to the end of the public health emergency in May, and the the DEA has come up with some new with some revisions to those rules that. They've they've drawn a lot of criticism from the American Telemedicine uh, Telemedicine Association and others. What's your take on these rules? And in, uh, do they do they at least advance uh, or help you in in some way, or are they more harmful than helpful? You know, it's a really interesting question, Eric. And you're right that um, it is very timely and topical right now the whole industry is a buzz on this issue and, and frankly i think it's good to see right because mm -hmm. this whole dynamic where dea has had a, a law and really an obligation to create a regulatory environment that we could all work within has existed since 2008 um, and this has been an issue that i and uh, my colleagues here at array i think have been pretty vocal about for the last 10 or 12 years with the DEA and the telemedicine community. And I think we've been quite frustrated uh, during that time period that we've kind of been forced to operate in this gray area where people didn't know the right and the wrong way of prescribing controlled uh, substances via telemedicine in a number of instances because DEA had not created the special registration process for telemedicine and had not given um, you know, proposed regulations similar to what they just published. And so while we feel strongly what the, that what they have just published is certainly not perfect and it's got some room to evolve and to improve, and I'm happy to talk about some of the areas where we think it could improve, we're actually glad that, you know, there are now proposed regulations on the table where the clinicians that want to practice telemedicine can have clarity on uh, kind of the rules of the game and what they can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. What part of okay? What part of the T DEA revision do you feel is good, or what will benefit you for uh, contr uh, pr prescribing controlled substances? I, I think the I think there are a number of things. I think the mm -hmm. the biggest thing, you know, as as my earlier comment indicated, is that now we know the rules of the game, right? So we've been working in this space for more than twenty years at this point. And we have sometimes found it's been difficult to hire clinicians because they've been aware that there's been this kind of regulatory gray area in telemedicine prescribing and they've self-selected out, right? Uh, they've said, hey, I'm not comfortable with operating in a gray area, particularly with the DEA. So while I'm interested in providing telepsychiatry, I'm going to say no thank you right now, right? And so that's been an example where a, a very valuable and scarce resource has been underutilized because we've been in this gray area. And I think one of the things that these latest regulations does is it can help clarify that and hopefully draw more clinicians into and keep them in um, telemedicine overall. Uh, we do generally like the fact that these regulations, I think, are trying to drive toward a sort of kind of omni-channel approach 
to healthcare, where an appropriate mix of in-person services and telemedicine uh, services and collaboration across clinicians can be enabled. We agree that that is conceptually a very good thing, um, but how it plays out is really quite challenging. And I think we believe that maybe the, the current regulation uh, as drafted doesn't contemplate all the nuances of what should that in-person and virtual dynamic look like. We don't feel like um, the 30-day window for issuing an initial uh, controlled substance uh, prescription is adequate uh, mm -hmm. in order to get that in-person evaluation. We also feel very strongly that there should be a similar window where a controlled substance for stimulants, specifically for child psychiatry, could be enabled prior to that in-person visit, right? That's an area where we do a lot of work and where we just see uh, such tremendous need. Um, and we also feel like there's room to enhance the way that that telemedicine referral should exist between uh, the in-person uh, practitioner and the remote practitioner. So we feel like there's some good foundation here to build on. Uh, we would love to see this evolve and improve into the future where we all know with clarity um, kind of what is, what is allowed. Um, you know, there's a tight timeline to get this all stood up and, um, you know, stood up uh, where people are not going to have a gap in care at the end of the public health emergency. And uh, I think that's causing some anxiety across the whole industry. Yeah. Do you feel that the way the rules are written now, when this public health emergency ends next month, are we going to see some significant changes in how telehealth is used for, for behavioral health care? I think we will. I, I think that, you know, as a practice, what we're deciding to do right now is assume that the rule, the draft rules are going to become final, right? And so we're kind of building our plans and our priorities and our clinical workflows for the future around this. Uh, we would love to be pleasantly surprised and see kind of more nuance and flexibility contemplated into the future. Um, you know, there are you know, thousands of patients that are now under our care where we're having to have difficult conversations with them about how they need to arrange for um, an in-person visit sooner rather than later. And in some instances, they're able to do that because they have a pediatrician or a primary care provider. In other instances, we're having difficult conversations about how do you want me to do that? Um, and uh, I think that's scary for folks. Yeah, that's interesting. It's and it's certainly going to lead to a, a shifting landscape in, over the next couple of years. Now, a lot of what we're looking at here is, is, is this specifically for the treatment of substance abuse? You know, I, I think it certainly has applicability to uh, both substance use and, and general mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it really is in the prescribing of, of buprenorphine. Uh, for substance use disorder that this issue um, and the controlled substance registration or process is most significant. Uh, I think we do like the fact that there is some unique consideration being given to uh, buprenorphine in the proposed rules. We'd love to see similar consideration for stimulants for children uh, for child psychiatry. Um, overall, I think we have all seen that the flexibilities offered during the PHE have done a lot to enable uh, more access to appropriate substance use disorder treatments, uh, particularly MAT, and we hope that that doesn't go away. Yeah, and it, it, substance abuse treatment, that was one of the areas that was held up as this 
certainly benefiting during the pandemic from these revised rules. And there's there seems to be a lot of support for these types of tools now going forward. How do you see this this whole area evolving? You know, beyond what we're doing with the DEA now, where do you see more uh, more ability to use telehealth or digital health or any of these new technologies coming down the line? Yeah, I, I think we are really interested to see how this is all going to evolve in a couple of the areas where we're really thinking about are this idea of kind of omni-channel healthcare, right? And this blending of in-person and virtual care, which ideally occurs in a seamless way, and I think is, um, you know, a great thing to aspire toward, but just exactly how it happens and how different practitioners, maybe a different practice groups, um, you know, are able to effectively collaborate with one another. Um, you know, that's a question of more than just the technology or more ju than just the regulation, right? It's about clinical workflows and record sharing and, and uh, you know, even a, a reinvention in some ways of, of how a lot of healthcare services are delivered. But we see great potential there and we're excited about that. I think we're also excited to see uh, more seamless integration of some of the great digital tools that have come into the space and some of the live services uh, that are offered through organizations like our own. Uh, we think that a blending of some of these asynchronous digital tools and live services can give us a better, more a comprehensive approach to healthcare and that can make good use of those scarce resources. Um, I think overall, we're also really interested in seeing more and more integration between physical and behavioral health, right? Um, there's been lots of examples of virtualized collaborative care programs that have grown during the pandemic where uh, an individual's primary care physician is partnering with a behavioral health group to provide more whole person care um, and sort of a recognition that the brain and the body are in fact connected to one another. Uh, so we get pretty excited about seeing more collaborative care and integrated physical and behavioral health programs. Um, you know, and as it relates to the technology, I think we've been excited to see how much has come into this space in kind of a short period of time, right? And, um, you know, we have seen a number of kind of digital tools that are getting layered into clinical care um, in different ways, right? They're, they're now at the fingertips of our clinicians and the individuals seeking care. In some instances, they're being used to kind of route and guide people to the right level of care and intervention. In other instances, they're being used to kind of augment live services and to give clinicians more of a toolkit of different indicators that can influence and support their care. There's been a lot of activity in behavioral care in particular, really focusing on how can we use more digital tools to better measure the outcomes of the treatments that are being delivered. And then there's been a lot where we're extending care outside of the live sessions, right? So things like ECBT, and journaling and messaging and various types of asynchronous interactions are really causing us to reimagine the whole model of what mental health services are, uh, because it doesn't just have to be about what's happening in that live session between a licensed professional and an, an individual. Uh, these tools are enabling us to take that session kind of on the road and to extend it asynchronously. And, and that's pretty cool, um, right? And, and so, again, we think that there's going to be this great place for these digital tools that in some instances 
have been stood up as their own independent thing. We, we love to see the idea of them getting woven into the clinical workflows of practices like our own, um, where um, you know they're they're really reimagining what what behavioral healthcare delivery is. Yeah, yeah. The idea behind some of these wearables is is that you can collect more data from the patients in their home or in their out in their setting and and gather more data for you to use in treatment. There's there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So long as you can, so long as you can then serve that data back to the clinician. Yes. In a format that is digestible and not overwhelming. Uh, that really enables them to uh, act upon it, right? That's that's the trick. Data for data's sake here is not helping our mental health clinicians. True, yeah. Is there one technology out there that you haven't used yet that you would like to? Personally, I am really interested to see how AI is going to take things to the next level in our space, right? I know that's kind of the talk of the town right now. Um, yes. I'm fascinated to think about its role in, in clinical decision support. Um, in the long term, but, you know, sort of in the near term, I'm most interested in how it can help us streamline a clinician's documentation experience, right? Uh, capturing those soap notes is one of the areas of greatest frustration and inefficiency for so many of our clinicians. It is robbing them of a lot of time that they could otherwise be spending helping people. Um, and I, I think there's just tremendous potential in the next year for AI to transform how clinicians are capturing their documentation. And I think that if done well, that could help bend uh, the curve on some of the supply demand balance, right? Theoretically, we have the potential to improve the capacity of our clinical workforce by maybe 15 or 20% if we can use AI-assisted technology to make documentation easier and better. Nice. What needs to be done to make uh, AI more adoptable or embraceable? I think what I'm hearing from the clinical community, particularly for these these purposes, is they want to see the validation, right? The the um, the fact that the AI has been scrubbed and specifically designed to be used in a healthcare and a mental health care application. Um, I think there's right now a lot of concern that the AI could be kind of quite convincingly wrong. Right, um, and that there's a chance that the clinician may not apply the right level of discipline to kind of scrub and clean the note before finalizing it. And I think there's a lot of anxiety out there right now on what happens if um, the AI has an error within it and our documentation is wrong. Um, you know, so I think there are a lot of people experimenting with this right now. You know, there are a lot of companies that are focused on this right now. There's great energy from what I've seen within the clinical uh, uh, team to vet this all out and find the right applications for it. I think it's going to happen quickly. Uh, that validation is going to come quickly. And I think we as a practice will be using this within the next year or so. Very nice. All right. Well, Jeffrey, thank you very much for, for taking the time to join us in the podcast today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Eric, and thanks for what you do. You're uh, a great resource to the whole industry on this. Oh, thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Health Leaders Podcast. We will be back next Tuesday with more healthcare industry insights.